Take your Bible this morning and let's go to Matthew chapter 7. We're back in the Sermon on the Mount and we're concluding the Sermon on the Mount actually. We're in the last chapter and the last sections of this sermon that the Lord is delivering there on the side of the hill. And I hope that you're growing and learning through this time as I am. I have particularly enjoyed this week's study and carried it over two weeks and have really benefited from this, and I trust that this this text will encourage your heart as well. I I think we're proficient today, uh, by way of introduction, we are proficient today in excusing ourselves. Um, I at least can speak from my own testimony that I am proficient at excusing myself. Uh, A lot of times I seem to have a special knack for downplaying my own weakness, um, for making it less than what it is. Um, for making sin less than sin. Uh, We sometimes even admit that we are weak or that we have failed, and yet somehow we can turn that failure to make it look less than as dramatic as it really was. Um, My personal uh, battle with uh, issues like this and my own high view have come in a number of different facets, and there are as many different scenarios in which we excuse our own sinfulness as there are people here this morning. Maybe you have battled with a lack of discipline in your life. Discipline spiritually, discipline physically, taking care of your body. And and sometimes it is just easier to acknowledge that, yeah, there is a struggle, but it's just because I'm in a busy season of life. Um, I'm really not undisciplined. I'm really not wrong in my priorities. It's really just something that has been placed on me, so I can't be disciplined. Or um, I'm careless in my spending or in my stewardship of what God has entrusted to me. And and it's not so much that I'm careless or that I'm inappropriate in my priorities and in my heart condition, but it's just that there's there's an economic crisis and we're all struggling. So the fact that I'm to my eyeballs in debt is not something that's exclusive to me. It is something that's happening and it's being placed upon me. That's not personal testimony, by the way. I'm not up to my eyeballs in debt, but hypothetically, we could say, Um, we have a tendency to make situations look better if they involve us than they really are. We have a real propensity to making sin less than sin. We may even acknowledge that it's sin, but in our response and in our attitude and in our brokenness over those activities, we have transferred it to something less than sin. This morning, Jesus doesn't give us that opportunity. Um, If you're not used to it by now, Jesus will leave you without excuse. And He's going to do it again today. He did it some 2,000 years ago on the side of a mountain with a very real group of people who were curious about Him. Some of them had already committed their lives to this Messiah. Some would reject Him. Some would scream for His crucifixion in a very short time. And yet Jesus teaches here as equally potent today as He did then, and He leaves us without an excuse if in fact we are His. He outlines the attitude and the heart condition of prayer. And if we want to have a universal sigh of defeat in our prayer lives, we could do it this morning. We, Jesus communicates to us, have a sinful heart problem. And that is why we struggle in our sin lives, or in our prayer lives, rather. 
There is a sin issue that is at the root of your battle for prayer. Probably some of you are like me at times. And the question you dread or the set of questions that you dread more than any other with other believers is something like, what are you learning from God's Word right now? And you start to feel that sense well up in you that I'm not learning from God's Word because I'm not spending time in God's Word. And so you hope that they don't go to Grace Church and then you go for Matthew 7, right? I'm teasing. All right, or Matthew 6 or something from the Sermon on the Mount. And I hope that that is a part of your testimony. The second question that's equally um, disturbing to us is, how is your prayer life? How is your walk in communion with God? How are you relating to Him and speaking to Him in prayer? How is that going? How often do you pray? How do you cultivate prayer in your life? If another believer asks you, how, do you, how should I, as a Christian, cultivate prayer in my life? How would you answer? These are troubling questions to us, not because we're busy, not because there's so much on our plate to accomplish. Not because we live in a very hectic time. Not because the Lord has placed something on us that has restricted us from these activities. If we would fail to be able to share with another how we live in prayer with God, it will be because of a heart problem. Jesus, in this sermon... You know this already if you've been with us. He's concerned about his kingdom, and he's concerned about the heart. He leaves us without excuse. In fact, let me ask you a couple of questions. Just You can answer these in your own mind. Last time I did this, spouses were answering for others. No spouses answering this morning. You just answer these in your own mind. No elbows and no knees, okay? Don't be elbowing somebody about the question. Take these. And think through these, and I hope that the answers to these questions will actually help us as we study this morning. Question number one. When do you pray? When do you pray? When do you have private communication with God? When do you personally speak to your Creator? When does that happen? Second question. What do you pray for? When, or maybe if, you are communicating with your Creator through verbal prayer, what are you praying about? And what are you praying for? What are you asking God to accomplish? When do you pray? What do you pray for? And the last question is probably most important and probably most difficult to answer. Why do you pray? Why do you pray? What drives you to actually communicate, whether silently or verbally, with speech that is audible? What drives you to communicate with God? Why do you do it? What are your hopes? What are your anticipations from prayer? What are your expectations? When do you pray? Maybe the first question should be, do you pray? When do you pray? What do you pray for or about? And why do you pray? I ask those questions because if you're like me, and I know you are because of our sin nature, if you're like me, there are definite times 
when the answers to those questions change. There are times when we pray consistently, so much so that we would actually be obeying Paul's command to pray without ceasing. We are in a state of prayer. We are talking with God on an ongoing communication basis. Secondly, there are situations that come into our lives where we pray for very specific responses from God. We desire very specific answers. And there are times in our lives where we can clearly identify why we are praying. We know the reason that has driven us to prayer. Take the answers to those questions, when, what, and why do we pray? And let's bring them to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11. Bring your application. Bring wherever you stand this morning. You may not pray at all. And maybe we stopped with the first question. Maybe you do and you struggle in prayer. Maybe you had to answer that the times that you pray are at the mealtime because you're the one who's expected to lead that prayer. You say grace. Whatever the situation, maybe you are a prayer warrior and this is your life. This is what you do. You pray on a daily basis for consistent private time with God in extended periods. Whatever the case, let's bring those answers to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, and let's let the Word of God inform us about the heartbeat behind prayer. And let's talk about the kingdom and the kingdom citizen's life of prayer. Verse 7 says, you can read along with me silently. Verse 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? This is the Word of God the living, inerrant, inspired Word of God for our consideration this morning. Now before we jump into verse 7 and unpack what is here for us today, I want to just draw your attention back to the immediate context behind this passage. What is preceding this to help set the stage for what we're going to study today? Because context is king. And if you have a text without a context, you are in danger of a pretext. Alright? Remember that. It matters where we are. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, but specifically, we're in the Sermon on the Mount directly after Jesus commands us to remove judgmentalism from our attitude while being discerning. You remember that? Verses 1-5 through say that there is no place for us to exalt ourselves to the place of judge over others. And yet we must be discerning and humbly helping our brothers and sisters. Verses 1-5. through We need to remove that log, that, that beam that is in our eyes, so that we can help our brothers and sisters with their speck. Humble, non-judgmental help. And then he calls us to discernment in verse 6 and commends us to be careful with the treasure of the Gospel. If we come in contact with those who despise who reject with disdain, who mock and trample the message of the Gospel, 
we are to discern at some point in that interaction that there are other people that must hear the news. And we make a discerning decision about that in verse 6. On the heels of those commands, and are those not daunting commands? Don't judge, but help brothers humbly with the issues of their own hearts and lives. And secondly, discern. Discern to the place of being able to identify those who are considered by Christ to be classified as dogs and pigs, and those people do exist. I mean, if this doesn't leave you feeling a desperate sense of, how am I going to know? How am I going to know this? How, how do I discern these things? How do I do this? In fact, in our grace group, we were discussing this passage and talking about applications from this. And the common theme was, how will I know if I'm actually going with the right heart attitude to remove a speck from someone's eye? How will I know that there isn't another beam that I don't even know about hanging out the side of my head? And I'm a hypocrite. How can I know these things? How can I be discerning of my own heart and my own motives and discerning of others? And so here in the preceding context, Jesus establishes a sense within his hearers, and I trust a sense with you and with me, of our desperate need for him. Which leads us then, naturally in theme, it leads us to what we find in verse 7. It leads us to prayer. And this morning, I want us to notice here in this, these few verses, in this short text, I want us to notice three necessary realities for kingdom prayer. I mean, there is a specific listing here, a description of realities that are unique to kingdom prayer. A lot of people pray. A lot of people utter words that are considered prayers. Only the kingdom citizen has rights and access to the throne room of the Creator Sovereign, the one true God. Only the kingdom citizen can come as an adopted son or daughter because of Jesus Christ and enter in boldly into the throne room because of the merits of Christ, not because of their righteousness. And so we find here principles for the prayers of those kingdom citizens. Three of them. And number one flows directly from verses 7 and 8. Principle number one, reality number one, kingdom prayer is desperate prayer. Kingdom prayer is desperate prayer. See, how do we, how do we get to that place? Well, in verses 7 and 8, you see three words used to describe the, the asking that goes on between the child of God and Father God in heaven. You see a relationship and a communication described with Three different terms, ask, seek, and knock. Now those verbs are given to us as commands, and yet they are present tense commands. In, in other words, here's what uh, we could read this if we just translated it woodenly. It would say, be asking, and it will be given to you. Be seeking, and you will find. Be knocking, and it will be opened to you. In other words, there is a present tense ongoing reality for the kingdom citizen of desperation. They are asking, they are asking while seeking, they are looking, they are anticipating, they are active in their prayer life, and they are knocking, they are persistent. They're desperate. These words are powerful. They pray, they pursue, and they persist. These kingdom citizens 
we, kingdom citizens, are to be praying as desperate individuals. The kingdom citizen is one who is aware of his complete need. You remember this? You remember the first characteristic of the kingdom? We've gone back how many times to the first character trait of the kingdom? In chapter 5, if you turn back just a page or two, chapter 5, verse 3, you will see the first and primary characteristic of a kingdom citizen. Jesus says that the most blessed and the only blessed, truly blessed individuals on the planet are those who are in his kingdom. And here is the first description. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here is the bottom line, the The lowest common denominator amongst kingdom citizens is they are poverty-stricken spiritually. They are bankrupt. They are foreclosed spiritually. They have no resources to pay the tab. They know that they're on empty. And for the character trait of the kingdom to be fleshed out in life, it is to see the emptiness of my own merit, my own righteousness, my own abilities, my own effort, my own power to see the utter emptiness is to turn then naturally supernaturally because god has radically transformed us it is to turn to this asking seeking and knocking kind of desperation folks there is nowhere else to turn if you're a kingdom citizen this morning you only have one place for the resources you desperately need. And that one place is assumed here in Jesus' command, and it's further described later that we are talking to the Father. We're talking to God, the Father Himself. Prayer is the means of God's provision for His kingdom citizens. This is a desperate lifestyle that we see in verse 7. James chapter 4 is a helpful text. If you turn over there, turn to your right in your Bible, head towards the back cover, James chapter 4, you'll find a very helpful text on prayer as well. James chapter 4 and verse 2 and 3 will help us understand this a little better. Right at the end of verse 2, James begins a new sentence. He's talking here about personal conflict within the church. And they're quarreling and fighting because they cannot obtain what they want. Conflict results in not getting your way. And two people who don't get their way at the same time ends up with a healthy fight. Okay? That's what happens. And notice what James describes here as the reason why these individuals actually are not obtaining. You have not, he says at the end of verse 2, because you do not ask. And you ask at times and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. All right? The prayer life of these described here who are actually praying in the letter that James wrote to the Jewish people, the prayer life that's described here is not a desperate prayer life. It is a selfish prayer life which does not match the trait and the character quality of the kingdom citizen. If the kingdom citizens are to be asking themselves, when do I pray? What do I pray about? And why do I pray? If it was applied to those kingdom citizens that James wrote to, they would have to answer, I pray when I want something. I pray that God would give me what I want. 
and I pray because I want to be happy by what I want. Those are the answers to the question. And James says, you will not receive. The door's closed. There will be no favorable answer from God. D.A. Carson describes this same concept. He says, the Western world is not characterized by prayer. By and large, to our unspeakable shame, even genuine Christians in the West are not characterized by prayer. He goes on to describe our culture as hustle and bustle and our love for smooth organization and powerful companies and novelty and and our our pride in self-sufficiency and self-confidence. And he says the church of Jesus Christ has conformed so thoroughly to this environment that it is often difficult to see how it differs in this matter from contemporary matters. Our low spiritual ebb is directly traceable to the flickering feebleness of our prayers. Beloved, this morning, Christ describes the prayer life of the kingdom as a desperate prayer life. One that is marked by a persistent asking and seeking and knocking. You will never, let me say that again, you will never be what you see described in the Sermon on the Mount apart from desperate prayer to your Father. You will never be what you see in, this, in these pages, in this Sermon on the Mount. This will never be your reality. This will never be the description of your life apart from prayer. Apart from persistent prayer. Jesus here describes for us a desperate situation. There is no other way to receive the gracious power and blessing of God than to ask for it in desperate humility. Spiritual bankruptcy leads to desperate prayer. Jesus goes on in verse 8 to say, For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. And, and here we have the, the flip side of the coin. Not only is kingdom prayer desperate prayer, but kingdom prayer is effective prayer. Folks, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read these verses and I kind of don't want to read them. Because they're blanket promises. And I don't see this happening in my life. God says, if you ask, you will receive. And if you seek, you will find. And if you knock, the door will be opened. Kingdom prayer is described here as effective prayer. Two realities. Kingdom prayer is desperate prayer. It is an ongoing desperation and it is an effective prayer. He backs his command in verse 7 with a promise in verse 8. Receive, find, and open. These are the promises. Now, there's a common question that at least comes to my mind and repeatedly came to my mind as I studied this. In verse 7, we see, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, and the understood there is it. And knock and it will be opened to you. And, and I, I kept coming back to the question of what is it? What is Jesus promising that if we pray for, we will receive? What is he promising that if we seek it in prayer, we will find it? And what is he promising that if we are persistent and we knock on the door, 
we keep knocking, it actually will be open to us. What is the it? I wondered that. Maybe you've wondered that. It is the character of the kingdom revealed to this point in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, what Jesus says here will be received by the kingdom citizen is the desperate plea for seeking of and knocking to gain the character revealed in chapters 5 through 7, the kingdom citizen's character. Those traits, the holiness that you find on the pages of chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, if you are praying that God would would work in you and eradicate the angry heart that is a murderous heart, if you are praying that God would remove the, the, the lust of your life, that you live in mental adultery, if we will seek it and pursue it and we will knock and be persistent, these traits will be open to us. We will see the righteousness of Christ poured out upon us in our daily lives. If we are praying desperately for wisdom and discernment that we might rightly evaluate the circumstances around us, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, it will be given. You are guaranteed that it will happen if you will ask, if you will seek, and if you will persist in knocking. Kent Hughes, great expositor from College Church in Wheaton, Kent Hughes in his commentary on this, warns us to look out for any understanding of these verses that basically relegates God to a celestial slot machine. You just, for all you gamblers out there, all you casino rats, I know you're out there, hanging out. I can't even remember what the casino is called that I always see on TV, but one of those casinos, you're there. We, don't, we need to talk about that later, but for the sake of illustration, you're there. And basically, in your thinking, this passage, or in your understanding that has been taught to you elsewhere, the understanding of this passage is that God is basically just a heavenly slot machine. If you pull the handle enough times, eventually you're going to get what you're shooting for. You just keep putting coins in, keep pulling the handle, and eventually you're going to get something out of it. If that's the understanding of what's going on in verses 7 and 8, and these very careful and specific promises given by Christ to his kingdom citizens, they're very real, then we have completely misunderstood what Jesus teaches. Persistent prayer is about the kingdom here. It is about desiring to see the very life revealed and exposed here in this description, verses five, or chapters 5 through 7, applied to me. Are you desperately seeking to be a Matthew 5 to 7 Christian? Or are you pretty well content with your version? Are you desperate and are you prayerfully desiring, seeking after and persistently pursuing God to work in you to create and to conform you to the image of His Son, which is a Matthew 5-7 to life? Or are you satisfied? Are you like the churches in Revelation that are lukewarm? You've lost your zeal. You've lost the desire. You see no need. Everything is fine the way it is. In other words... Here, Jesus communicates that as we desperately seek God in persistent and active prayer for our spiritual good and development, the answer is always yes. Always. For everything. 
Always, everything. Big general statements, and they're true. Jesus says, if you are seeking and desiring your good, your development, your growth as a follower of Christ, if that is the pursuit of your prayer, and you are persisting in that before the Father, this guarantee comes to you, the door is going to open. The floodgates are going to pour out. You're going to be answered, and the answer is going to be yes. Kingdom prayer is desperate prayer because it recognizes that apart from God's work, nothing will be accomplished. Kingdom prayer, secondly, is effective prayer because it is matched with a promise from our King Himself that it will be answered. Prayer is the means of God working growth in His kingdom people. And when they pray, He gives. When they ask, He pours out. Now folks, don't miss this because there's a common misunderstanding about prayer. And that is, hey, if God is sovereign, then He's going to do what He's going to do. And apart entirely from me. And, and I, I would warn you that that is an uncareful thought. Because God is sovereign, He has ordained means by which He accomplishes His purpose. And the means by which He will develop you into a Matthew 5-7 to follower of Christ is your prayer. It is your seeking. It is your persistent knocking. It is you coming to the throne room of God and saying, Father, I want this. I want to be this person. I want to have these qualities in my life. That is the means by which our sovereign King has ordained to grant us that growth. If you're not desperate in prayer, you have no right to anticipate that you will experience these transformations, that you will experience these fruits in your life. Kingdom prayer, desperate and effective. Number three. And finally this morning, kingdom prayer is confident prayer. I love when Jesus gives us word pictures to help us understand. Kingdom prayer is confident prayer. He goes on to explain to us the reasoning behind this in verses 9 through 11, and we're going to read that in just a moment. Verse 9 says, Or which one of you, presenting a hypothetical situation, and really a ridiculous one, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Jesus here is presenting a word picture to hammer home the truth, and he's dealing with children and their daddies. Okay? If you've been a daddy, think back. If it's no longer the current state of situation, your kids are out of your home, think grandpa then, because this, this truth applies just as equally. Jesus is talking about daddies and their kids. And when those kids come to their daddies and ask for something that is good for them, that is food, bread, and fish, no daddy would give them something that would harm them. No daddy would give them a rock and say, oh no, really, sport, that's a piece of bread. Go ahead and chomp down on that. Okay? I mean, that's ridiculous. No daddy, if he was asked to give fish, would instead give them a serpent that would harm them, that would bite them and and make them sick because of its poison. And Jesus uses that argument in verse 9 to lead to a greater argument in verse 10. And, and he's done this before. You remember that he did this when he talked about our kingdom perspective with worry? Remember he went from the flowers and the grass. Now the birds, they get to eat. Remember that? Now why are you worried? Okay, the birds got to eat and the flowers got clothes. 
So go ahead and calm down because you're a child of the king and he's going to take care of you. Okay? He's going to take care of your necessities. He does the same thing, lesser to greater, right here in verse 9 and 10. He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone, or if he seeks a fish, you'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, verse 11 says, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? All right? The argument goes from you, who Jesus classifies as evil, and if that is a shock to your system, maybe you could stand to read Romans 1, 18, and you could read through chapter 3, verse 20. You and I are born evil. And yet, even in our evil state, even as sinful humanity, we would never harm our children. The greater argument then is, if that is true about us, imagine what is true about the Father. If you're evil and you're willing to do good things for your kids who ask you, imagine the holy king of heaven and his response to his children. And his children are kingdom citizens. His children are you and I if we are in fact in Christ. We represent this description in verse 11. The point here is we should be praying with confidence because our father is good. Okay, folks, this is the theological backing behind your prayer life. We pray and we interact with our Father because of the work of Christ. We interact with our Father in a desperate sense. We are aware that apart from Him, it will not happen. We pray with an effectiveness because we ask and desire and seek after our own spiritual development and good as revealed on the pages of Scripture. And we are promised that we can do that with confidence because our Father is good. He's not bad. He's not evil. God will give us what is good for our spiritual development if we will persistently and expectantly ask Him for it. And that goes for anything. He will answer your prayer. Contrary to popular opinion, And I think I grew up with this same popular opinion. God really doesn't have a part of him that finds joy in making your life rough. All right? You ever heard somebody talk about this? You know, I'd really sell out to God, but then he'd make me go to Zimbabwe. And, uh, you know, as if God was waiting. And, oh, oh, good, little Joey finally surrendered his life. I'm glad he did that. Now, what can we do? What can we do? Let's have a, a triune meeting here and decide... How can we make Joey's life as rough as possible? Zimbabwe sounds good. Let's send him over there. He grew up in central California. He'll have a horrible time adjusting in the culture, right? No, God does not operate like that, folks. He does not enjoy your life being rough, nor does he have at his heart making you struggle through life. Your struggle is directly related to your awareness and your belief that he is good and he is at work operating His purposes in you. He delights to give you what is good for your growth. And He delights to give you what will make you more effective in bringing Him glory. Everything He does in the life of His people is for the sake of their good and His glory. Your God is a good God. You can pray confidently. 
Your God has your best interest in mind. He is sovereign and he is good. Now you're saying to me, you know, you're sitting there thinking, I mean, what, how naive is this kid? And I know you're thinking kid. I understand. I get it. All right? You're thinking, how naive is this guy? He's saying that God has my best interest in mind. Maybe there needs to be a news flash about what my life really is about. Because I'm struggling. I've got a terminal illness. I've lost a family member. My job is, is going down the tubes. I don't know how we're going to provide for the next couple of months. My schoolwork is horrible. I am, I'm failing out. I'm going to be a washed out failure. God, if God is this kind of a God, how could, how could that be true with my life? How could those statements actually hold up? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Romans chapter 8 helps us understand this. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I've repeatedly come here, it seems like, in different settings, privately and publicly, and yet I am so overwhelmed with the reality of what we find in Romans chapter 8 as part of our thinking as we come in prayer confidently to our God, who is a good Father, a holy Father. Romans chapter 8, in verse 28, and we know this passage. We'll begin reading in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. for We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. All right, the context is set. We're desperately praying, and yet we don't even know what to pray for. We're so heavy laden. The Spirit works in us and through us, and He makes intercession on our behalf. What a comforting promise. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, if the Spirit is interceding on your behalf, you are so broken, you are so low, that you don't even know how to pray. You don't even know what to ask for. The Spirit intercedes for you, and that intercession is matched with the promise that you find in verse 28. And this verse you know well. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called according to His purpose. If I'm a child of Christ, I know that what is going on in my existence, what I don't even know how to pray about, and the Spirit is making intercession for my groanings before God. I know that God is working that for good. See, I just don't get this, Adam. will keep reading. Verse 29 says, here's what the good looks like. You want to know the good that God intends and will accomplish through your circumstance? For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Did you catch that? Here's the explanation. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God has your best interest in his heart. And what is best for you also is most glorifying to him. And what verse 29 describes to you is that the good that always will come from your circumstances is your life being more conformed to the image of Christ. When was the last time we prayed that way about our trials? When was the last time we prayed that way for our sick relative or friend? 
When was the last time we moved away from body part prayers to praying that God would accomplish His good plan through this trial? God, I don't even know how to pray. This is so disastrous. I don't even know what to say. But I'm confident that You are good. And I know that Matthew 7 reminds me that as I ask and seek and persist in knocking, You will answer and You will accomplish Your good plan because You are a good Father and I am Your child in Christ. And the good plan will be my conformity or those in the trial's conformity to the image of Christ. They will look more like Christ because that happened than they would have had it not happened. Therefore, I pray with a totally different perspective. God is good. He is good in the middle of the hardest of trials. He is good in 9-11. He is good in Pearl Harbor. He is good in war. He is good in famine. He is good. His people have the confidence to know that He is working out in them a conformity to Jesus Christ. This is the loving plan and wisdom of our God. Now that leaves us with a couple of implications. And we'll close with these. A couple of implications for us from this concept of confident prayer to a good God. Implication number one is we don't think highly enough about God. All right? Implication number one is we pray, we really don't think highly enough of God's wisdom. We don't consider Him to be the one who alone can interject in our situation. We don't consider Him to be the only one who can work good through us. There isn't anybody else. But we don't consider Him that way. We don't believe Him to be that way. We don't actively pursue that understanding. Therefore, we don't pray. Folks, the reason we don't pray is because we think we can do it ourselves. That's why we don't pray. That's it. We don't pray because we don't think we need God. You remember the questions? When do you pray? What do you pray for and why do you pray? You know when we pray most is when we're aware in a special sense because of a circumstance that we can't, we can't change anything. We can't do it. Life hangs in the balance. Our loved one is there. We pray. Why? Because none of us can come up to that loved one and put our hands on them and, they, and it's over. And they're, they're healed and they're, they're going to live and it just goes on. We can't do it. And we're stuck in the moment saying, I, there's nothing to do. And our hearts are drawn because we're followers of Christ to truth. And the truth is you can't. But you have a God who will and does accomplish good. Therefore, you pray. Second implication, not only do we not think highly of God, which results in no prayer. The second one is we like to define good for God. Which leads us to praying wrongly. We like to define for Him what good would be. Now, Father, I want to grow. I want to develop. And probably the best way to do that would be to land me a better job. Because I'm struggling with contentment. I'm really battling with this boss who is on my case day and night, who thinks he is God's gift to the world of business. I am battling with this situation. And I want nothing more than to be a Matthew 5-7 to kind of Christian in my workplace. 
So the best way to have that happen, Lord, would be for you to switch things up and maybe throw in a raise on top. That would really help us out. Right? We define good for him. We actually tell him, we actually come to him and say, not only do I I believe in some sense that you have a good plan, but I want to help you out, Father, in knowing what would be really good. And James addresses that. That's exactly what he's talking about when he says you pray to consume it on your own passions. That is, I have a set of standards and desires and, and goals, Lord, and the best thing you can do is, is make them happen. Folks, that's not how we pray. The kingdom citizen prays in desperation because he knows he has no wisdom, no spiritual ability, no power. He prays effectively because as he prays in that manner of humility, God rewards it. And he can pray confidently because God is going to work out the best. He is going to use this circumstance, this trial, this issue of my life, these blessings in my life, that raise, my new job. He's going to use all of those things for my good and for his glory because he is a good father. I ask you this morning, do you have a high view of God? Because it will affect our prayer lives. Do you have a high view of his wisdom? Because it will affect how you pray when you pray. And what you ask for when you pray. The one who has not yet understood the goodness of God finds themselves always praying for the removal of trial. I just want it to be done. Just get me out of this. That's the prayer life of one who does not understand the goodness and the wisdom of God. Folks, I'm right there with you. I'm right there. I pray just like you pray. At times we spurt in prayer like when our car starts to make a weird noise and we're like four miles from home. Just start praying. Just start praying. Lord, I don't know what's going on here. Why? Well, because in that very moment, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about something that I know, and if you really knew, I, I really don't have any ability to affect. Okay? And yet I pray not with an awareness of who I'm praying to. I do not pray with an awareness of his definition of good, and I do not pray effectively in those moments. You think high of God? Do you think highly of his wisdom, or do you always want to get out of the trial? Do we always pray for the ending, or do we pray for the middle? We pray for the good of Romans 8.29 to be the truth about us. Because folks, if you ask and seek and knock, you will receive that, God will conform you more to Jesus Christ than you are today. Tomorrow, if you'll seek and ask, He promise it's guaranteed. If you pray and ask for Him to do that, He will do it. Are we always praying for the removal? Or are we reveling, as James 1 tells us, with joy in various trials because we know that God is perfecting our faith in that trial? That's in the middle. So that at the end, we give Him glory. Now, how does this affect us? How does Matthew chapter 7 affect us? Let me just give you a couple of concluding thoughts. Kingdom prayer exists only for kingdom citizens. Okay? I think you know this. The Sermon on the Mount is not general good teaching. It's Christian teaching. And these commands and promises are for those who are kingdom citizens. Those who have come to Christ, they have set aside their own righteousness, their own effort, 
They have recognized their sinful condition before a holy, righteous judge who is the Father. They recognize that the penalty for their sin is death, and they place their faith in the death of Jesus as a substitute for them. God works in them a radical transformation to bring them to the place of submission and humility and faith. They are rescued from their sin. They are now followers of Christ, and Christ is the king of this kingdom, which makes them kingdom citizens. This is for them. This is for you this morning, believer. Kingdom prayer exists because of your king and your high priest, Jesus Christ. Maybe you haven't thought about it or meditated on it, but Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16 say, there is no prayer for you unless Christ, your high priest, made way for you to enter. You don't get to communicate with God apart from the substitutionary work of your high priest and your king, Jesus. Kingdom prayer exists with the aid of the Holy Spirit. We read this in Romans 8, 26. You should have a, a, a God complex in prayer. You should be aware of God in every way. I'm speaking to the Father. The Spirit is aiding me. And Christ is at His right hand interceding for me. He's made way for me to come into the room. God is at work as we pray. And kingdom prayer is always, always, always drawn back to our understanding of who God is. When do you pray? When you are aware that God is God and you are not. What do you pray for? Well, if, you're a deepening, if you have a deepening understanding of who God is, you're praying for His good to be accomplished in your life for His glory, whatever that may be. Why are you praying? Well, if you're a growing kingdom citizen, you're praying because you are desperately aware of your inability to affect your situation. Therefore, the only remedy for you is to come before your sovereign king. Let me challenge you to pray for God to work in you. If you're here this morning, you're a kingdom citizen, pray for God to work in you so that you may see him in all of his glory and might respond in desperation every day of your life. Folks, we should wake up with the gospel. We should wake up aware again, I'm a sinner who deserves hell, and God has rescued me by His grace. Wake up again, desperate, because I need new mercies every morning. I'm in need. And let's pray with obedient persistence to become praying people. Right? Let's pray to become praying people. And as we persist in asking God to work that in us, as we seek that by active prayer, as we persist and knock at the door, God promises through His Word, through the testimony of the teaching ministry of His Son, that He will make us a praying people. Ask, and you'll receive. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Comforting. Comforting and yet convicting words from our Lord Jesus Christ.